Welcome back to Inspired to Life. I'm Robin Ivy, and I'm so excited today to have my guest, Gay Hendricks, here. I've got his bio to read. I almost don't even need to read this, Gay. That's how well I know you from the outside. Gay Hendricks is a psychologist, teacher, and best-selling author of The Big Leap and his latest, The Genius Zone, and countless others. He served for more than 40 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of personal growth, relationships, and body-mind therapies. After receiving his PhD in psychology from Stanford in 74, he spent 21 years at the University of Colorado, becoming a full professor in the counseling psychology department while founding the Hendricks Institute with his wife of nearly 40 years, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks. Today, they have authored over 35 books, including the iconic Conscious Loving, right here, yep. Uh, and they teach workshops worldwide around transforming your relationships and taking big leaps. He's also the founder of the Spiritual Cinema Circle. And in 2011, he partnered with writer Tinky Lindsay to be, Tinker Lindsay, pardon me, to begin the Tenzing Norbu Mystery Series with titles such as The First Rule of Ten and The Second Rule of Ten, which illustrate emotional and spiritual challenges and the life of fictional ex-monk private detective. Welcome, Gay. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Robin. I appreciate you mentioning my mystery novels. That's my sort of my pet passion on the side yeah. when I'm not writing regular books. I think it's important to, um, I like to include little things about people that other people maybe don't know or that you're that are still your passion. And just so listeners, I um, I already told Gay that I have Kleenex here at the ready because he doesn't know this, but he's been like a surrogate dad to me. My father passed away in 2010. Mm. Oh, and um, I've been reading your work mm. for so long. I've mm. had this conscious loving book for so long and it's really changed my life. And I don't get to say that to everybody that I interview because they're not you. But I think it's so important when we get the chance to speak to people who've really mattered in our life that we tell them. And you have really stood for me at a time when I didn't have a dad anymore in ways that I don't think I could ever really articulate, but to have you be a presence in the world that can take a stand for total strangers is so important. And it was why I was just crossing fingers and praying that you would say yes to this interview. So at the very least I could acknowledge that um, and appreciate you so publicly for the work you've done, for, for the work you've done in your own journey to be who you've become so that you could be that for me and so many other people. So. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Mm. Thank you so much, Robin. That is so touching to me. I appreciate hearing that. And I'm honored to be a surrogate dad to you. I appreciate that very much. Mm. Thank you. So your work has been, what it's done for me has really helped me, help me make peace with where I am and help me create what's next, which was really the foundation of what this series of conversations is about. And you mean, you've been at this work for so long. As we come out of this strange time we've just been in, what do you think people need the most right now to be able to be with what's here and move into what's next? I think this time is a great calling for authenticity. And I think it's also a, an extra special calling to people to tap into their unique genius. Mm. And so whether you're watching this or listening to it, I can promise you that one of the things that you have going for you 
is a genius inside you, something that's yeah. the sweet spot of what you most love to do and what will make your biggest contribution to the world. And I think this particular time where things, the kind of the table has been, uh, what's that old thing, the tablecloth trick where they whip the <laughs> tablecloth out from under everything. I feel like the last year has been one extensive tablecloth trick where we've all had the ground of our being kind of swept out from under us. And at a time like that, I think it's a real calling to get in touch with who you really are and what you really want to contribute. So that's what I'm calling on all my folks to do in my community. And I'll do the same for yours is to really get down in there and figure out what is my true genius and how can I express it in the world? Because to me, it's really the ultimate satisfaction is when you can find mm -hmm. something that's you love to do and a way to bring it out to the world that makes people's lives better. That's, mm -hmm. that's living at its best to me. Yeah. How do people do that? Like I, because I feel like there's so much confusion coming out of this and, and really just on a general Tuesday for a lot of people in the world, right? The push and pull between what the world is asking of us and what our families of origin told us we could do or strive for, or got to be in the world. How do we make, um, make sense of what's really our personal genius instead of what we think we should do or what the world thinks we should do? That's such a great question, because I think one of the tasks of any conscious human being is to find that sweet spot of what you most love to do and bring it out to the world in a way that serves other people and yourself. I think we all have a yearning to do that. And so the place to start is just one moment of conscious choice about, I choose to make my life a quest to liberate and express my genius. You know, that is a great way to come at life, just to make your whole life about the emergence of your genius. That's what I did with mine you know, way back 40 years ago. So when I first started catching on to these ideas and began to see how they worked, um, I decided that I was going to turn my life over to my genius and I was going to make a commitment to expressing more of my genius every day. When I first did that, I was only spending about maybe 10% of my time in my genius zone. Mm. And so I wasn't born perfect at this or anything else. I had to make it up one bit at a time, just like you do. And, but you know, it's like, Every day, especially as you get um, up in years, you know, especially past the age of 40, uh, you don't look like you're there yet. But I you, am. I'm 47. I'm 47. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Good. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Yeah. See, uh, but, you should uh, know since you're my dad. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was, I was only, I've only been your dad since 2011. That's right. That's so right. Me, I was always be, uh, that's right. I'll always be 36. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, especially uh, once you get to midlife and beyond, it becomes extremely important to choose your creativity because like uh, Eric Erickson, the great developmental psychologist at Harvard said, every moment after midlife is a choice between creativity or stagnation. Wow. Creativity, stagnation, pick one. And you just have to keep picking creativity over and over again. I think I told a story, I can't remember if it was in the Big Leap or the new book, um, about 
the woman on the park bench in Paris. Um, did you read that story? If, if not, I'll tell you. A keep going, quick, keep going. Okay, yeah, I'll give you the quickie version of it. So first time I ever went to Europe, way back 40 some years ago, I was sitting on a park bench in the tu Tuileries Gardens, just kind of enjoying the ambience there. I did not speak French at the time. And so I was just sitting on a park bench enjoying the morning and I saw a woman come hiking very purposefully uh, across the gardens all the way across and she plunked down on the other end of my park bench. And the thing that caught my eye was she had what looked like a pair of brand new sneakers on. And um, she said, good morning to me in English. So I knew she spoke English. And so I, I complimented her, I saw her, those new sneakers. And she said, yes, it's my sixth pair on my trip. And I said, where have you been? And she said, I walked here from Arizona. Okay, so my eyes popped open just like yours did. And I said, really, how long did that take you? And it had taken her six months, but here's the kicker. She started in Arizona and she asked her husband, she told her husband, I'm retired now. I've been a school principal for 30 years. I'm retired. I want to walk around the world. Want to come with me? And he said, no. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I asked her actually uh, why he'd said no. And she said, she was very loving about it. She said, he has his favorite TV shows and he would miss his TV shows. And he didn't want to go because he he's tuned into these TV shows. And so they'd made an arrangement that she would go on her walkabout and he would come out, fly out to visit her every now and then. So every uh, few months, he would zip off to wherever she happened to be. So here's the interesting thing. Isn't that really two different approaches to life? You know, one person decides to walk around the world and another person decides is, no, I really want to catch that days of your lives tomorrow or as the world turns or whatever that TV show was. I want to know what's going to be happening. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel that pull inside me. I feel that pull inside just about everybody that we have this part of us that yearns for adventure and for turning over our lives in a benign way, just like you need to turn over the soil in the garden in the spring to get it where it will receive the seeds of creation. Well, I think we need to turn ourselves over all the time and be, I tell my clients who come here, a lot of them are executives having midlife crises. And so their corporation will send me the CEO to fix him up for a couple of days. And so, uh, but oftentimes I find that the person has overlooked the problem for a long time. They've swept it under the rug because oftentimes when a person comes here at age 50, they'll tell me that they started feeling this stuff knocking on their door back in their 30s even, this desire to really change your life. Now, some people do it by quitting their job and taking a sailboat to Tahiti, but I don't recommend that path because it, usually they get to Tahiti and they realize they've brought their entire set of problems with them. Um, so I've heard that story more than once. But what I think people really need to do, especially as they get up into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, is benignly let go of the familiar and keep opening up more to what your genius is. 
there's that part of yourself, I promise you, that has infinite delight in it, that once you kind of get yourself out of the way and start opening up to that genius part of yourself, wow, it takes you into some unusual places. I'm here because of that. I mean, when I, when I first started thinking about these ideas, I was um, just really beginning my career as a university professor. And at the time, there was no internet. At the time, there was no real even PBS shows like there are now about, you know, with famous brain experts or psychologists and things. I've even done a couple of those myself, um, but they, they didn't exist. And in fact, um, there weren't even really any self-help books. So we had to kind of invent it by the seat of our pants. And one of the things that I did was kind of go down to the basics in myself and say, okay, what are the recurring situations and problems in my own life? And how can I first heal those? And so the first thing I worked on was how to get a sense of alignment inside myself so that I wasn't hiding my emotions from myself. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't trying to, you know, get away from some parts of myself. So that took me a long time to kind of learn to love myself as I was and, and to acknowledge. That didn't happen overnight for you, Gay? <laughs> no, I, it didn't. <laughs> I, I have had some amazing things happen uh, in an instant, but it takes, see, I think most people underestimate the power of choice and rechoice and rechoice. Um, I always like to use the image of the automatic pilot of the airplane. Um, you know, you put it on the... Uh, flight line from Rhode Island to California. And by golly, it gets there, it's always drifting off and recorrecting, because it has a program in it that says, okay, if we go too far to the right, kick a little to the left. And if we go too far to the left, kick a little to the, and so it gets all the way to California by being wrong most of the time, because it's willing to recorrect. It's really. a beautiful reframe. Yeah. And so, Think of your mistakes like that, you know, there are opportunities to recorrect. And, and also, one of the things in the new book that I really make a point of in the Genius Zone is that we're getting dozens of what I call genius moments every day, that life is bringing to us the very opportunity to transcend our upper limits and go directly into the Genius Zone. And yet, oftentimes, we kind of are oblivious to those signs. So if you sit down for, I want you to sit down for an hour, those of you that are going to read the book, sit down with it for an hour. I recommend uh, really work the book because it's taken from things I actually do in my office and conversations I have face to face with people. And so it's that kind of book. And so I... Uh, you're welcome to take it to the to the beach with a, uh, a diet soda and your uh, sunscreen, but I'd really like it if you'd sit down quietly with it in a little corner of your uh, house or office or apartment and work on it because uh, the techniques in it, I know for a fact, change lives. Well, and your books are really lived workshops. If people yes. treat the, if people use, you know, you can choose to either just read it or you can choose to really live it. And I have to say the difference, at least with conscious loving at the beginning of things and five wishes, boy, living it really is a life changer. Yes, it is. And it changed my life. I wouldn't be here without it because, you know, there was a moment like these little genius moments occur. I'll tell you one. 
Katie and I were sitting in front of the fireplace in 1987 or eight, and we had just worked with a bunch of couples in our living room using the tools that we later published in Conscious Loving. But at the time, we hadn't thought of writing the book or anything like that. So in front of the fireplace, we had this moment, and this is a genius moment, where I said, I'm kind of frustrated with the model we're using. You know, like, now we've got 10 couples in our living room. Last week, we had six couples in our living room. Even if we had a 4,000 square foot office, which we <laughs> later did, uh, there, even if we put 100 couples in here, that's still a very limited thing. We've got to put this down in the form of a book and maybe even somehow get it into a TV show or something like that. Well, so we sat there in front of the fireplace and we said, okay, let's just be open to see what happens. Let's just make that intention. See, the power of intention is so incredibly important to human beings. Just forming a light intention like that is a great place to start. Well, suddenly the idea, I figured out how to write the book. And so I sat down and took six months and wrote the book. And we got a great offer for the book, published it. And Oprah's on the phone and suddenly we're working instead of 10 couples in our living room, we're working with 10 million people on the stage at Oprah. And yet it starts with these little tiny moments. And I call them genius moments. They're moments where you may even feel stuck or like you don't know what to do. I want you to cherish that moment because in that moment, if you can let go of control, and I have some specific instructions in the book about how to do this, if you can let go of control for even 10 seconds, you get direct access to this place in ourselves I call your genius zone. And it's a, it's a kind of a, a workaround. It's a way of getting out of our own way very quickly and gently. And so that's why I want you to sit down with the book and learn how to do this for an hour and just treat it like you're treating a little workshop with me because um, uh, I read the introduction uh, to the uh, audio book and then um, a colleague and actor uh, does the instructions and things like that in the second part of the book. And so it's a real opportunity to have a face-to-face right in your ear, right in your face conversation about how to unlock your genius. That's so powerful. I know in the book, you talk about the genius move. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. The genius move is the moment that unlocks this little space I'm calling the genius zone. And the genius move is, I'll have to do a little back explaining on this to, to help you understand it. I want to give credit to a gentleman of 2000 years ago named Epictetus, who wrote a little self-help book. Actually, he didn't write it. His students collected his cool things he said and organized them into a little book. And the first principle in it, the number one thing he says, is the secret of happiness is knowing that there are some things you can control and some things you cannot control. Wow. Have you ever heard that idea before? <laughs> sure. It's in the serenity prayer. It's in everything that uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step people is there. They control, focus on the things you can control. 
admit that you're powerless over alcohol and focus on not taking a drink this particular day. Focus just on that thing. And so they have a whole program of things, you know, the 12 steps are ways of doing that. But regardless of whether you're a 12 step person or not, it's the same principle that Epictetus is talking about, about look at every situation and try to find out what it is you have some power over changing and what part of it you should just say, ah, and let it alone, let it be because you cannot change it. So having said that, the genius move is when you realize, oh, I'm up against, I'm thinking about something that I have no control over. I'm recycling my thoughts over and over again about the past or the future or something that is outside of my control. The moment then you shift out of that, and I actually have a chapter in the book on breathing because it's Mm. so important because how many thousands of time in my office when I've had someone do this, they go like this. Oh, I just felt like a weight dropped off me. And so I started playing around with breathing and showing people how to actually make that happen with their breath. You were almost like the original Wim Hof. Yeah, you know, I don't know too much about that work. So uh, um, uh, maybe you could inform me about it. I've heard people mention the yeah. name, but I really don't know that particular body. Yeah, of he's work. he's um, he's focused a lot more on cold. Like his his history was in cold cold water um, exposure, but he does yeah the same same sort of breath work that you initiated once upon a time. Yeah. Well, it's very powerful. I think um, you know. Um, the oldest breathing exercises I've ever seen go back 4,000 years BC in some old yoga documents. Yeah, I was going to say the yogis have been doing the breathing so old. Yeah. And um, there's I mean, probably uh, as old as we are, right? I mean, since people have always been breathing, somebody must have been connected to that wisdom. They figured out how to use your breathing. The big problem I've, I've noticed in teaching breathing for a whole lifetime is, um, I mean, a whole career is that when people get into their uh, start getting feelings about something, whether it's anger about something or sadness or fear, oftentimes they try to restrict their breath and go into shorter, shallower breaths as a way of holding those feelings at bay. But I teach people to go the opposite direction to ah, acknowledge their feelings and if possible, speak about them, you know, because, um, most it is life that's problems, important, Gay. <laughs> most life problems can be solved in a couple of 10-minute sweaty conversations, and sometimes it's 10-second conversations. Yeah, that and a glass of water does people a lot of good, right? Yeah. One of my favorite teachings that you've offered me was that um, that anxiety, uh, excitement is just fear without the breath. Right. That like that, yes. because I think of that in the, in, in the channeling of, of you in the father mode, I'm like, okay, that's right. Dad. Like I'm scared of something. I think, okay, I could feel it. I could feel the constriction in my body. And then I can hear you say like, okay, it's about the breath. Like the moment you breathe, the fear transforms into excitement. And that really excitement is just fear without the breath. Like when I heard that I was that unhooked so much for me. Yeah. Because it tells you that the solution is, 
bigger breaths, not smaller cramped squeezed yeah. breaths. And I really appreciate you mentioning that. Um, I actually originally got that from a psychiatrist named Fritz Perls, who uh, yeah. passed away about 1970. So I really didn't get to spend too much time, but I heard through one of his students that uh, idea. And if you'll check it out, you'll see that it actually works because the same actual physiological mechanisms that run excitement are the same ones that run fear. Yeah. And so if you clutch up and stop breathing and, and don't participate with your feelings, of course, they're going to get worse. And it, you can't make your feelings go away. You have to breathe to include them. Uh, it's not about making something go away or getting rid of something because where would it go? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the issue, right? That's why there's so many health traumas in our, just, we're all just embodying the feelings we're not making room for. Yeah. And I, to, to get back to what you were talking about with, about your dad, um, I want to salute the, the feeling you know, the, the feeling, the way you connected with him, the particular way, the particular love connection you had with him, which was a distinct, unique thing. And that's a living force in your life. It is. The grief is immense because, I mean, and I know I have people like that. My grandmother was that person for me. And to this day, I can actually feel myself yeah. tearing up a little bit. To this day, it's hard for me to believe that she's not here, yeah. you know, because she's such a living force in my life. And yeah. so I can feel that same kind of connection you must have had with your father. And it's a much more recent thing. So I want to salute that and have you really embrace that with wholehearted, full-bodied tenderness, because Thank that was you. a great force in your life. And it's one now that you can let other people participate in just yeah. like I can let myself by letting myself feel my grandmother's presence in my life today, I can share her love with you and the people yeah. in your community. And that feels like a beautiful thing to do. I, that feels like to me, a kind of a joyful sadness, even though I can feel yeah. I have tears in my eyes, it's a celebration. You know, it's not me trying to get rid of something. It's me celebrating something. Yeah, I've chosen to really, like in the case with you, like I felt like, okay, well, what are the qualities of my dad that I really loved, that I really miss, and that I would still like to have engagement with? Because my spirituality just lets me allow that he's still right here to talk to. So it's, I still feel like I have this beautiful engagement with him, but I found it was helpful for me to seek out similar energy to his so that you know, it, when the moments, maybe my father was a pastor. So in the moments where I might've like sought out his wisdom in a gentle way, that's when I would turn to your work and think, okay, well then like gay's work can resonate with me and do the same thing. When I recognize the need I'm having is to have a tenderness from like a divine masculine tenderness in this moment around something, then I can seek that out in, in other men and other mentors and, and women too, in that case, when it's about my grandmother or my mom or what have you. But in this particular instance, it was about finding an energy that was really the same with a similar kind of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Well, that's beautiful to share. I really appreciate that. My daughter is actually a couple of years older than you are. Uh, so we're in the same league generally, yeah. as far as uh, father-daughter kinds of things. 
Yeah. I wonder when, um, I know when you use words like genius and creativity, I know I've been a photographer for the past 25 years. Well, a working photographer, but since I was a kid and I know like a lot of non-artistic identifying people get triggered around words like creativity and words like genius because they're not good enough. You know, the storylines already make the words uh, an unavailable access point. And I'm wondering if there's other words that you would use or other ways to describe that to move past people's um, resistance to the language. Well, one thing you can do is look at the origins of the word genius because it makes it a little easier. Uh, you remember those old fairy tales about having a genie in a bottle and rubbing the bottle and releasing the genie out of it? Well, that's the general words that genius comes from. So think of yourself as a, as a bottle with something magical inside it. You don't even need to call it creativity or, or genius. You know, one of my mentors, Abraham Maslow, said, it doesn't matter if you're making a beautiful symphony or a beautiful soup, as long as you're engaging your creativity. And I have a definition of creativity that I use that um, really works for me. And creativity is anything you do that has the capacity to surprise you where you may be making your soup and then you say, oh, what if I put a pinch of oregano in it? Or, wow, I wonder, there's this new Indian spice that I've been hearing about. Let me drop a little bit of that in there. Katie, my wife, uh, Kathleen Hendricks, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, um, has probably worked with 5,000 people up close and personal, one-on-one -on -one in her office, and yet, what just blows me away is to sit in the kitchen with her and watch her make a soup or a salad because like to make a salad, she touches every single thing that goes into it. And that to me, see, I, I, I came into my relationship with Katie, sort of a food as fuel kind of person. You know, the idea of kind of paying attention to food did not compute for me. And so, but she's such a master of the craft that I soon learned, wow, I'm missing out on watching Leonard Bernstein conduct a symphony, you know, yeah. it's that. So anyway, I'm just saying that yeah. genius can occur, creativity can occur in all different places in life. It's anything that gives the capacity to make you go, oh, wow, let's do it a little different this time, or oh, wow. And so I think once you kind of take the mystique out of creativity and realize that it's just tinkering with things, it's playing with things. You know, there's a great book um, by uh, a philosopher named Johann Huizinga, and it was called Homo Ludens. And instead of Homo sapiens, Homo Ludens, and Ludens refers in Latin to playful. So he's saying in that book that what makes us humans is our ability to play, to play with concepts and to play with ideas and to play with things. How could I make that a little better? And I love that idea of human beings, not only homo sapiens, but homo ludens, also people of play. Yeah. Because when you think about it, a lot of the best ideas come from play. You know, like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak sitting in 
their garage or their parents' garage, just kind of bouncing ideas back and forth. Hey, could we do this? Could we do this? Could we do this? Or, or you know, Georgia O'Keeffe, great painter. I love her work. I've, mm. I've gone to Chicago on a number of occasions to the Art Institute there to see the big Georgia O'Keeffe painting that's wonderfully displayed there for a long time. Well, Georgia O'Keeffe, I recently read, said she spent every day of her life feeling scared. Mm. Kind of, you know, just barely trying to stay. I wish I could have met her. I would have shown her how to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> and she would have yeah. had that same energy, yeah. but she wouldn't have been scared all the time. So that kind of breaks your heart when you think of somebody that's a genius, but they got there through ooh, kind of holding on tight. I, you know what I refer to that? I always refer to it as when I feel like I'm like, dun -dun 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 -dun. you know, like I, I feel like I'm the Wicked Witch of the West on the bicycle. You know, I'm just I'm on that. It's that constricted, confined, non-flowing energy, right? Well, that's a barometer for me now. I, I began to cultivate that feeling of flow inside as a barometer for myself a long time ago. And I keep my attention on that all the time. Where do I feel that flow? Did I stop feeling that flow for a moment? You know, I, I tune into that constantly because our nervous systems have been evolving for millions of years to become more sensitive mm -hmm. to things. And a lot of times we block out our basic sensitivity by kind of withdrawing from our feelings and withdrawing from ourselves. And I was reading an anthropology book one time where they were talking about a tribe in Africa, in the south of Africa, a Bushman tribe that live out in the desert. And they are so sensitive to the movement of game animals. They make most of their living with uh, hunting and uh, with bows and arrows. And they get most of their information through the soles of their feet and up into the calves of their legs. They can feel the vibration of buffalo herd nine miles I've away. Heard, I've heard that. Isn't that amazing? It's you amazing. Feel, you know, like, I don't have that kind of sensitivity in my feet and the calves. You know, there yeah, could be but an your life didn't herd depend on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't depend on it. So I got my sensitivities otherwise, but we are wired in such a way. Just look at our eyeballs, for example. You know, the human eye can only see this tiny little sliver of what's available on the visual spectrum. There's other stuff there. There's x-rays there. There's infrared over there. There's all these things that we don't know how to see yet. We see this little slice of the world. So what else is out there? I want to know. I want to open myself. I want to live, you know, in that great Mary Oliver poem where she says, I want to be a bride married to wonder. Yeah. I want to live my life that way. You know, I want to yeah. be in life in a state of wonder. I think that's where we feel the best. How do people, if they're feeling stuck and they're feeling the, the sense of anxiety, like I know I feel like there's sort of a couple different camps of people re-emerging. Those who are really excited to get back, like they're that they've had some time now to think about what's what's important to them or what they're excited about. And now they're really ready. It's like game on. I might not know how, but I'm ready to go create something. And then mm -hmm. other people who have like their life has really been turned upside down. And the and the what's here is a lot to be with before they can create the what's next. So like how, what's the, what's the beginning parts of moving through the anxiety of the stuckness as we 
attempt to reemerge. Well, we've been talking about breathing a little bit. Think of your breath as a metaphor. Think of your in-breath as how much am I willing to let in? How much am I willing to feel? How much am I willing to own? And think of your out-breath as how much am I willing to express into the world? Well, remember with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she said, those who breathe most air live most life. So if we're living life with a big open heart and a big set of clear intentions, you know, we're going through life with that kind of zest. But if we're not in touch with who we are, what we feel, what our genius is, in other words, we're not breathing all the way in, we're sort of, and then stopping, stopping. And or the same thing on the out breath. If you're not breathing out, if you're not expressing all of yourself, if you're, ha, ha, you know, you're not going all the way through your full, ha. Use your breathing as a metaphor for your living. How much are you living? How much of your genius are you owning? In my opinion, it's the most exhilarating, important conversation a human being ever has is how much am I going to feel and express while I'm here during my one wild and precious life? Yeah, it's such a journey to expand into ourselves. And I feel like I feel like middle age has been a gift in that way, right? Like when more you can connect the dots, the more it seems like the more we connect the dots, I feel like the more of a container I create that then I can expand into, you know? Yeah, and, and wait till you get up into your 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'll tell you, I have had the most exhilarating ride over the past 10 years. Uh, just That's amazing. so good to hear. Yeah, and in every possible way, I feel my creativity. Well, I've written nine mystery novels since I turned 65. And so uh, I didn't even think of doing that. And today you're officially in a a bestseller again, as of today. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. That's a big deal. Yes, people are snapping up the genius. Does it still feel amazing? Like, does it like winning the Oscar the first time? And then after like the fifth, you know, like eventually does that, are you just like, oh yeah, bestselling, whatever. Uh, no, I never feel that blasé about anything. Good. <laughs> I like to feel this kind of zest, whether I'm yeah. on top of the bestseller list or not. Yeah. Well, fortunately, because of the big leap, the big leap has been a bestseller now for 10 years. Nice. And so Amazing. Uh, I, I'm always popping up on one list or another. So I think I've maybe gotten a little bit used to that, but I always appreciate it very much. And especially when a new book comes out, there's this moment of, uh, I always liken it to, uh, probably being pregnant for 10 years because I've I've been thinking about this new book for 10 years and now yeah. finally it's out there in the world you know and I can stop thinking about it for a little while and yeah. now now people are using it and uh, so I'm very grateful for that um I forgot the original subject of what we were talking about what was well, the original I have question? another question for you because one of the things I've appreciated about you is that although your life started in the realm of psychology, I feel like you've cultivated this really beautiful intersection of um, psychotherapy, you know, for like the legit psychotherapy folks in the world, and also this really beautiful spirituality. And on top of that, I would say, I even feel like there's some metaphysical things that come into that space or, or maybe more, more transpersonal type things that, that enter into your work. And I, 
how did that come to be for you? Like how, how did you, how did you start to bring the spiritual into the work you do and then really incorporate it into the work you share with the world? Thank you for that question. That's great. I very seldom get asked that. Um, I, one thing that happened when I was a little boy sticks out in my mind as if it were yesterday. I was being taken, uh, my mother was always looking for great childcare opportunities in Leesburg, Florida in 1950. And because uh, she was a very harried. A, that was such a diplomatic way of saying that. <laughs> She was a very harried single parent of two boys and uh, a widow. Um, and so she worked all the time. And so she would drop me off at this vacation Bible school at uh, nine o'clock in the morning and then come back and pick me up at lunchtime when I was a little boy. And so um, they were talking about Jesus. This was at a Methodist church in Florida. And they were talking about Jesus all the time as the son of God. And so I remember one day talking to my mother on the way home, and I very innocently, I, I, I knew I didn't have a father. I knew my father had died, and I knew that Jesus had died. And I said to my mother, um, is there just one son of God, or can everybody be a son of God? Wow. And it kind of floored my mother, I think, because uh, she, I think, started thinking about my father and started crying and everything. But I remember the moment of having kind of a, an emotional charge to it of thinking, wow, you know, what about all of us? Even the girls, why they ought to be the son of God too. We were all the son, you know, so that was my, I remember that little spiritual wow. moment. Um, and then I, <laughs> I think I got, completely forgot about it because it wasn't until I started meditating when I was in my mid-20s, I started, uh, I learned TM, which was very popular at the time, and I still do it 50 years later. It's a great wow. um, But I That's, that's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Isn't that a shining rec a recommendation 50 years later? Uh, oh, absolutely. In fact, yeah. I haven't missed a day in uh, almost 50 years. Wow. And so, um well, you know, it's like taking, to me, for, it's like taking a shower in your mind. You meditate for 15 or 20 minutes, you come out and you feel, psst, you zoom, you know, yeah. everything's clean and clear and my body feels relaxed and my mind feels sharp. And uh, that's why I always meditate before I write in the mornings. Yeah. I wake up, I sleep from 10 to 4. And uh, so I wake up at 4. And so from 5 to 7 or 7.30, I'm writing usually. But I always meditate before that because I want to get in that clean, clear space. That's where I want to launch my writing from. And then I meditate again at the end of the day. And my wife does too. So Katie and I usually meditate uh, at the end of the day together. She's she's not an early riser. She sleeps in until 7.30 or 8. Mm -hmm. So uh, I always do my morning meditation by myself, just me and the two cats. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, because I feel like it, I don't, um, often hear of people who necessarily started off in, in there. I am always just fascinated by where those, where those pieces come together for people. See, I think they come to, I, I think they're, they should never have been separated. Uh, in the me first too. Place. Right. Uh, how, know, right. Because where does a human being leave off? Right. We don't leave off. You know, we have this wonderful, rich internal structure, but science tells us that we emit some kind of a positron field around us or something. So, you know, different emotions causes a different 
um, electron field. I don't know the science of this real well, but yeah. uh, I've, I've read that we emit some kind of fields and that kind of thing. So I just like to say, let's live in the mystery. Psychology, the science of psychology is great because it can help us figure out what's quack stuff and what's good stuff. And, you know, it has a nice role in life. But don't stop there, you know, because human beings have been spiritual beings for a very long time. And we're made of the same stuff as everything else is in the universe. And part of that has to be the spirit. And so I don't care what you call it, you know, in India, interestingly enough, their word for spirit, Atman, is very similar to the word for breathing, Atman. And so they're very cognate of each yeah. other. So the idea, and same thing in in Greek language, spirit or lang, uh, Latin, spiritus, mm. and as a word for the breath as well as spirit. And so I think if you go into yourself deeply enough and go down through all the stuff that we are and we are not, we come to this place of pure consciousness inside, which is, I believe, is our birthright as human beings to own that and to live in that state of pure consciousness and let that inform us in every moment. That's when you're in the genius zone, is when you're down in that accepting all of yourself and embracing all of yourself, then that magic zone opens up. Do you think it's in the way of people's joy? I think it's mostly fear. I think that um, if you look at the effects of fear, fear makes you hold your breath. <clears throat> you know, if you get real scared, you go <gasps> and you gasp, you hold your breath and suck it in and, and lock it in. Well, that's a that's just a natural physiological response, but a lot of us don't get out of that. A lot of us stay in that, you know, state like Georgia O'Keefe said that, you know, she spent every moment of her life in anxiety and she just stayed out in front of it by painting well i don't want people to get their creativity that way i want see walt whitman our great poet said i am large and contain multitudes and we all do we are large and contain multitudes and part of that is our emotions you know our brains are actually a good indication of how important emotions are because our brain is roughly the size of a good sized grapefruit. And it's built like that too, because the rind of the grapefruit is about how big our modern cortex is. It's, it's pretty thin compared to the juicy part of the grapefruit. And so it, to make the most of life, you have to learn how to accept and articulate your feelings. Otherwise you're missing out on all the juicy part of the grapefruit. And down there in the juicy part of the grapefruit is our sexuality, our joy, our fear, our grief, all of those kind of things. And a big mistake in life is to think that you can turn on the tap called feeling good and leave off the tap called feeling bad because life only has one tap to it, <laughs> one faucet. This is the Hendrix one faucet theory of, of life. You turn it on and out comes whatever comes. And it's like, I used to have a mountain cabin and I'd go there and I wouldn't have been there for six months and I'd turn on the water and it would go blip, 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 blip and blow out all of this um, brown, gross looking stuff. And finally the water would come through 
sweet and clear and it was beautiful mountain spring water but first you have to kind of get through the stuff of it and uh, then you get to taste the sweet clearness of it so i'm i'm here for lovingly opening up to those multitudes of ourselves let's not shame ourselves let's not beat up on ourselves let's treat ourselves like the incredible works of art we are we've been evolving for millions of years to be this amazing being and there are 9 million species on this planet and we are the one that can have a conversation like this so for gosh sakes let's celebrate that right do you do you manage your joy and invite the joy in a moment by moment way like recently i heard somebody interview um sadguru i don't know if you know who he is but so he was an, an indian guru and someone asked him about his daily spiritual practices and he laughed because he said i don't have daily spiritual practices I, I live a spiritual life. My life is my spiritual practice. Like every moment, every other than your meditation, do you have daily practices or do you, do you approach it that way as well? I, I have, uh, I try to live my life in such a way that I'm present in this moment for whatever happens. And if I'm having a conversation with the person who's sticking my groceries in a bag to me that's sacred yes. you know that's that's a me moment too. that i'm having an opportunity to be with someone so my intention is to be right there and be with them no matter what's going on and just like i came out of a shop a while back and there was somebody on the ground having an epileptic seizure wow. and i happened to know what to do in an epileptic seizure and so i helped him and got 911 and got in all there. So that was what was wow. happening in that moment. <laughs> you know, so yeah. you never know what life is going to sling at us. And so you just have to be with that as best you can and act as best you can in the present moment. To me, that's leading a spiritual life. I do things all the time that I think give me more access to spirit. Um, you know, like I keep my body in pretty good shape. I go to the gym a few days a week and I stretch and I do yoga and things like that and take walks with my wife and ride my bike. Um, so that's all about keeping a flow of circulation going in myself. Andrew Taylor Still, the founder of osteopathic medicine, uh, said the rule of the artery is supreme, that oh. circulation is everything. You got to keep it moving, you know, yeah. and, and circulation, not with just with blood, that's important, but lymph and communication mm. and uh, the it's all about circulation of energy. And if we cannot hang on and encapsulate of our energy, if we can celebrate it, be with it, let it be, communicate, that's life at its best. Yeah. It's a, I've been thinking um, this year, I had the opportunity to work out a lot more since I was home. And I found that I realized that when I work out, exercise really generates vitality in my body being grateful really generates vitality in my mind because mm. it somehow creates like from nothing, something like in that same way that if I'm lethargic and I work out, I can end up feeling much more expanded and alive and embodied, even though that sort of doesn't make sense since you're tired to begin with, then you do a hard thing. You'd think you'd be tired. Right. But I find that gratitude does the same thing. And so does being generous in the world. I totally agree. Katie and I have uh, for 40 years now practiced forward tithing. We oh, give a yeah. certain amount of money uh, just as a matter of course to different 35 different organizations now and uh, just let it be okay for that to come back in whatever way it comes back. And yeah. so far, so good. 
Well, the one thing I feel like um, sometime I'd love to have you come back with Katie because we could never talk about all the things at once. But given this is sitting right next to me, can you just share after having been married and been in the relationship transformation work for this long? What's what's the best thing you can tell us about happy, thriving, loving relationships? If that's something people are emerging into. Remember three things. Feel all your feelings. Tell all the truth. Keep all your agreements. If you allow yourself to feel your feelings, you're having a rich experience in your body. Then if you allow yourself to speak honestly to another person, it was a huge thing for me to even learn to say to Katie, I feel scared right now. Or I feel sad, you know, simple communications of feelings. It took me years to learn how to do that because I'd been programmed the other way. You, you know, weren't just born like cry. this day. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I, I think that life is about emergence. But if you don't allow the emergence to happen, you get one emergency after another. You know, if you allow your feelings to become manifest to you and learn how to talk about those, if you learn, if you let your genius come forth from you and learn to express it in the world, it's a form of emergence. And that's a sacred thing. Emergency, it often happens when you put the brakes on emergence. And so wherever you are and whatever you're doing, make a new deal with yourself and the universe to express your genius more each day and let that become a new living religion inside you that complements whatever other religion you've brought with you from the past. Oh, so beautiful, Gay. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? Uh, well, one good place is Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. We also have a nonprofit foundation, the Foundation for Conscious Living, that has a lot of uh, resource on it, uh, resources in it. And uh, Katie and I are very proud of the work our foundation does, giving scholarships and supporting things around the world. Um, so Hendrix.com is probably the easiest uh, place to access. And of course the books are available I know. everywhere. Do you, have your, do you have your book right there? We can show them. I sure do. I just got a fresh oh, new box of them. So pretty. Yeah. Good genius zone, everybody. <laughs> Kendris, thank you so much for being here. I really can't thank you enough. And I so appreciate both your presence in this moment and the work you do in the world. I appreciate your attention to gratitude and appreciation and uh, about creating energy. So I appreciate what you're doing. And thank you very much for being in the world in such a way that allows you to touch and move other people like you do. Thank you, Gay.